The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. All right, everyone. Let's look at our third passage of Scripture that I wanted to look with you at, which is going to be in Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. So, in the first two sessions, digging into this rich biblical truth about what it means to be in Christ, we've seen that it means to no longer be in Adam, it means to no longer be in sin, guilty before God, at enmity with God, under the curse of death and eternal condemnation, it means to be united to Christ. So that just like Adam's sin became my sin, so now through faith in Jesus, His righteousness becomes my righteousness. That's what we might call, what we looked at in in Romans 5 and Philippians 3 yesterday, the righteousness of God coming to me in Christ. That's what we might call the forensic aspect of being in union with Jesus Christ. Forensic means legal. It means like in a courtroom before a judge. It refers to how God sees us, how God judges us, how He considers us as judge of the whole universe as we stand in the courtroom of His divine justice in terms of whether we're guilty or innocent, in terms of our sinfulness or our righteousness. And the great truth is that forensically, legally, God doesn't consider me righteous on the basis of whether or not I do righteous things. God doesn't consider me guilty on the basis of whether or not I do sinful things. Isn't that glorious? He considers me righteous and forgiven in Christ. And so we saw in Adam we're accounted guilty. And in Christ now, the last and better Adam, He was counted guilty for our sins on the cross. So that in Him we can be counted righteous Declared righteous by God in justification. So being in Christ means being united to Him, being united to His person and work in such a way that all the sin that we have gets accounted to Jesus. Forensically, legally, by God. Imputed to Him. And then all that He has, especially His righteousness, becomes forensically, legally accounted to us on the basis of faith. And then just a few minutes ago in Romans chapter 6, we saw that being in Christ, being united to Him through faith, also means something something more even than how God considers us legally and accounts us legally. It also means, and let's call this the natural aspect, what's what's pertaining to our nature and what, what we are and what we become. Being in Christ means that we actually become in union with Him because we're not just declared righteous by His righteousness being accounted or imputed to us. We're actually buried with Him in baptism and raised with Him to newness of life so that we become dead to sin. Our whole nature changes now in Christ. The old man that we were when we were in bondage to sin because it had absolute dominion over us, that's all been crucified with Christ, the dominion's, been, the dominion's been broken, the dominion's been vanquished and conquered, 
and we're given all of the grace and the power of the crucified Christ, of the risen Christ, of the omnipotent Christ to walk, the holy Christ to walk in newness of life, to put sin to death, to grow and to thrive in holiness and live our lives more and more for the glory of God instead of for the sake of our own pleasure and our own desires. That old man who said, I'm going to do what I want, is dead. And now it's Christ in me. So, union with Christ means nothing less than dying with Him, being raised with Him to kainos, newness of life, a whole new order of being than, than what was true of me before. So for this third session, we're going to look at one more passage together. There's a lot of them that we could look at, but I want to look at Galatians 2 with you as we continue to, to grapple with what all of this means for us and how it really does define everything about us in our lives. And the key verses that we're going to focus on in Philippians 2 are verses 19 and 20 where Paul says that in Christ we're dead to the law. What does that mean? And alive to God. We need to understand what that means. And then in verse 20, I love this verse. And If we could grasp this verse truly, and the more that we grasp this truth really, your life will be transformed utterly by the reality of verse 20. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. If we can get the significance of that and live in that reality, it's going to have a massive impact on every aspect of our lives. So, first, even before we read some of this, we, we need to understand the context in which Paul makes those statements, that we're dead to the law, alive in God, and that it's no longer we who live, so much as Christ who lives in us. So, let's start, for context's sake, up in verse 11 of chapter 2, where Paul, in the book of Galatians here, is writing to a group of churches now. Not a single one, but a group of churches in the region of Galatia, in Asia, Asia Minor. And he, he's telling them starting in verse 11, about a conflict, a really significant conflict that Paul had with Peter when he was in the city of Antioch. And how how it pertains to what he wants the Galatians to understand about the Gospel. So we need to understand and we need to remember about Peter in order to understand this conflict about Paul. And what we need to remember about Peter in terms of this specific conflict that he had with Paul is what happened to Peter in Acts chapter 10. You don't need to turn there. Just let me summarize it for you. Peter, in Acts chapter 10, was in the city of Joppa, and it was around lunchtime, and he was really, really hungry, and God gave him a massively important vision. He, he, he fainted. He went into a trance. And God gives him this really massively important vision. This is at the headwaters of the birth of the church and it's spread. Remember Jesus said, you're going to be my witnesses in Judea where Jerusalem is and then in Samaria up to the north and then out to the ends of the earth. And, and, and it's just getting started to push past Judea and into Samaria now. And, and Peter's up there in Joppa, and he has this vision that God gives him while he's really hungry. And the vision is of this great big sheet, remember? 
coming down out of heaven, and on the sheet were all kinds of animals, including all kinds of animals that had been in the Old Testament forbidden for Jewish people to eat according to the ceremonial law of Moses. There's certain things that pagan people eat that we're going to consider unclean, God said in the Old Testament. Pigs. Don't eat pigs, right? Don't eat anything with a cloven hoof. Don't eat insects. Don't eat certain kind of fish. That's going to distinguish you from the pagans. And you're going to have a a unique diet, and that's going to be part of the ceremonial culture of Old Testament Judaism. And now, the sheet comes down and all that stuff's on there. And the voice of God comes to Peter, and God says, Peter, rise up and kill and eat. Eat whatever you want from the sheet. And Peter probably thought that was a test, right? I'm super hungry, (laughs) and God's testing my devotion, my piety. And whether or not the temptation of the hunger will cause me to eat something that is unclean. So Peter says, no way, God, by no means. I've never eaten anything unclean or common. I've always devoted myself to what your law prescribes. And God says to him, what? What God has made clean, don't call common. So something's changed massively now in the new covenant. And this happens three times before the vision ends. And what it meant was that the Old Testament ceremonial laws that governed the way that they worshipped in the temple, including these dietary restrictions and dietary laws, that had all been abolished now. Because there, there was no need for them anymore. There was no need for the temple anymore because Jesus had come. As the ultimate high priest, you don't need another high priest. Jesus had come as the true Lamb of God. You don't need to sacrifice any more animals ever again. Jesus had come even as the true temple of God, right? The ultimate temple of God. All the fullness of God dwelling in bodily form. So all the ceremonial stuff that was a part of the old covenant system, it's all obsolete now in the new covenant, in the blood of Jesus Christ. And and way more importantly than, than just you get to eat bacon now, as important as that is, as awesome as that is, even more importantly, God in the new covenant was doing now, see what he had prophesied in the old covenant scriptures by, by starting to bring the Gentiles into the church, into the community of God's covenant people. And so removing these restrictions on the Jews about eating certain foods that the Gentiles ate was to remove a barrier between the Jews and the Gentiles so that they could be together without distinction, without the Gentiles having to adopt these restrictions and do things according to the old covenant law in order to become Christians. The barriers removed so they could be together without distinction in the new covenant church and, and fellowship together and eat together. doesn't matter if you're Jewish. doesn't matter if you're Gentile. You, you can all eat whatever you want and, and you can all sit at the same table and eat it. And fellowship together because despite your traditions being different, you're one in Christ, right? Now, that all caused a bunch of confusion and uproar, you can imagine, within the Jewish community because they they grew up with these traditions and these laws and these restrictions and these prescriptions that now God's told Peter are are obsolete. And Jews are just supposed to accept that. It's hard for them. So there's a bunch of Jewish people that have come to believe that Jesus is their Messiah, 
but they're so used to all of that cultural stuff that they'd grown up with. It had been their tradition for centuries and the way that they had to live their lives that when all these Gentiles start coming flooding into the church, eating strange foods and living in different ways, the Jewish people who had become Christians weren't sure how to deal with that. And some of the really rigorously traditional Jewish people insisted that the Gentiles had to do certain stuff, like we saw. You've got to be circumcised. That's a, that's a non-negotiable. You've got to keep the law. You've got to restrain from, refrain from eating all this, all this food that you're not supposed to eat, right? And so they convened that council in Acts chapter 15 to talk about all that, to address all that. And, and the apostles there determined that the Gentiles should not be made to do any of those things. Don't, don't make them be circum. Don't make them eat dietary restricted laws. Don't make them do those things because salvation and membership in the church of Jesus Christ comes through faith alone, doesn't depend on any of that stuff. And also the Jews who said, okay, but we don't want the Gentiles like looking down on us for eating the way we eat and doing the things that we do to, if we want to continue to observe all those old traditions like circumcising our babies and not eating pork. And the apostles said, you can still do that. You can still do those things so long as you understand that they're just traditions now. They're not works that lead to your acceptance by God or, or, or certainly your salvation. And so Peter had understood all of that ever since the vision that he had there in Joppa. And, and so he started going out and preaching the gospel to the Gentile people and then fellowshipping with them, eating with them, eating what they ate because God said, do it. Not treating them like outsiders, not treating them as unclean people anymore or, or, or as distinct from Jewish people anymore because none of that matters. It just matters that together we're in Christ. So yeah, show me how to make a BLT, right? Let's do it. Until, until Antioch in Acts chapter 11. And in Antioch, a group of, well, while Peter was there fellowshipping among the Gentiles, he got news that there was a group of very, very conservative Jewish Christians who had stuck to their traditions and they were having a tough time dealing with all this Gentile inclusion, and they were coming to Antioch. And Peter got intimidated. Peter got afraid because Peter knew they're going to look at me sitting and eating with these Gentiles, and they're going to think lowly of me. They're going to think poorly of me. They're going to they're look down on me. They might rebuke me. They might confront me. And all of a sudden, Peter, right? Mr. Confrontation himself. Mr. I'm going to hack Malchus's ear off with a sword. Suddenly, Peter's scared, and Peter compromises. He started to disassociate from the Gentiles. I'm not going to sit at your table anymore. I'm not going to eat with you anymore. I'm going to hang out with these Jewish people. And all of a sudden, there's distinction. All of a sudden, there's division. All of a sudden, there's not fellowship. There's not equality in the body of Christ. And, and this is what Paul confronts Peter with, and he tells us about it here in Galatians 2. Paul had to confront him to his face, it says in verse 11, because Peter was acting out of step with the gospel. Peter was essentially calling people unclean that God had called clean, not just food anymore. 
And the implication of it all was that somehow being saved and being included as the people of God did depend on something in us and not on everything about and in Christ. So that's all what's behind Paul's words there in Galatians 2, verses 11 through 15. But when Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Because prior to coming or to the coming of certain men from James. These guys were associated with the Apostle James. Prior to these people coming, Peter used to eat with the Gentiles. But when these guys showed up, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. That's what he calls it. These guys who are still insisting that the Gentiles got to be circumcised and keep the dietary laws. And then the rest of the Jews joined Peter in hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by this hypocrisy. Paul says, but when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, Peter, in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like a Gentile, right? You were eating with them. You were eating what they ate. If, if you're... Understand that the gospel now means you can do that and not anymore have to be all restricted like the Jews. How is it that now you're compelling the Gentiles to live like the Jews? See, there's a disconnect here, Peter. You're, you're living like a hypocrite. And then he says, we're Jews by nature, not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that the law or knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Okay. So, by Peter's behavior, by the way he was treating these Gentiles, he was pressuring them to live like Jews, and to adhere to these Jewish traditions, which was hypocritical, which was, which is absolutely contrary to the gospel. And in verse 15, he insists that this distinction between Jews and Gentiles does not and should not matter in the church of Jesus Christ because justification, being declared righteous by God, can't possibly be dependent on that stuff or come by works of the law. It can only come through faith in Jesus Christ alone. So that's all the way back to what we saw last night in Romans and and in Philippians, right? Can't be right with God based on our own righteousness, based on our own obedience. We can only be right with God on the basis of another righteousness that comes outside of us from God himself through faith in Jesus Christ. That righteousness imputed to us, accounted to us. And so all of that is what Paul is talking now to the churches in Galatia about because they have now been exposed to that same false teaching that the Philippian church had been exposed to, which insisted that in order for Gentiles to become Christians, they had to effectively become Jewish first through circumcision and law-keeping in order to be made right with God. And so this is what Paul means in verses 17 through 19 when he's saying that these works of the law can't be the basis of our justification, or being made right with God. And that it's hypocritical to to tear down 
this false gospel of works righteousness that says you have to do this stuff in order to get saved. It's hypocritical to tear down that false gospel and then now rebuild it by insisting that Gentiles have to become Jewish. They have to stop eating that way and they have to get circumcised. Then they can sit at the table with you. So, that, as Paul says in verse 19, through the law, I died to the law that I might live to God. You see what he means by that? In the context of everything he's saying here, Paul says, through the law, I died to the law. What does that mean? In order that I might live to God. In the context of everything he's saying here, what he doesn't mean is that the law of God no longer has any place necessarily in the lives of Christians anymore. Right? We just saw that in Romans 6. Paul's not saying the law is irrelevant to you now. Now, we know that certain aspects of Old Testament law, the ceremonial parts have become obsolete because, again, they're not needed now that the great high priest and Lamb of God and true temple have come. But God's law contains all kinds of unchanging and unchangeable moral truth that defines what is right and wrong for everyone's lives all throughout history, anywhere and in any circumstance that they live as image-bearing creatures. Everybody's accountable to God's moral law. So when Paul says that he died to the law, he means that he died to the law, not as being relevant in his life in terms of shaping his life now that he's in Christ and living unto God. Obviously, the law is the way that God says, now live this way. This is what pleases me. This is what honors me. This is what holiness is. The law defines that. So when Paul says that he died to the law, what he means is that he died to the law as a means of being justified by God. He died to the law as a way of getting right with God. That's how he'd always thought about the law before he became a Christian. Right? All of that pharisaical, rigorous conformity to the law and obedience. He's counted all that as lost now. Not the law itself, but using it as a way, like a like propping it up as a ladder to try to climb his way up into heaven by his own effort. That's all rubbish because he's gained Christ. He's been found in Christ. He's been given a righteousness that's not his own, that that, that didn't derive from his own ability to keep the law. He's been given the righteousness that comes from God, which is the righteousness of Christ imputed through faith. So, So look at verse 19 carefully there. Even in the way that Paul phrases it there in verse 19, when he says he's died to the law, notice, what is it that's died? (laughs) It's not the law. The law hasn't died. The law hasn't gone away. The law is not what does the dying. Now that I'm in Christ, the law of God is dead to me. That's not what he says. Right? Now Paul's the one who dies in respect to the law. Calvin says, to die to the law is to renounce it as a way to be justified. And so to be freed from its dominion so that we have no confidence in it to justify us. And it does not hold us captive under a yoke of slavery so as to condemn us any longer. 
when you're an Adam, that's all the law can do for you. It can never justify you. It can never make you right from God. With God, it can only condemn you as you try to keep it and keep it sinfully and just pile more and more condemnation upon yourself. This is what Paul is saying in the entire book of Galatians. If you try to get right with God, if you try to be justified, if you try to be good enough for God to say, hey, well done. I'm impressed on the basis of what you did in yourself. You're now holy and righteous. And I say, if you try to do that, never going to happen. You'll always live. If that's your life goal, you'll always live in a horrible bondage because the law is, when you're in Adam, the law is, is absolutely relentless in its definition of holiness. That's what the Sermon on the Mount's all about, right? Fine, you haven't killed anybody. How's your thought life? Fine, you've never committed adultery. How's your thought life? Well, that's an impossible standard. Exactly. God's holiness is an impossible standard for us. And so if we try to use it as a way to get to Him, it'll only ever condemn us. When we're in Adam, when we're in sin, the law will always only condemn us. The law will never ever justify us. That's why Paul says that it was through the law that he died to the law as a means of righteousness. The law taught me I can't use it as a means of righteousness. The law taught me that the law can never promise life. It can only ever threaten death. But it was Jesus Christ who died that death in our place, right? And bore the full burden of our sin, paid the full price of our disobedience, which means that He removed the law's condemnation of us and gave us freedom and gave us life. So we see here again, just like in Romans 6 last time, union with Jesus Christ means nothing less than Jesus' death becoming our death. And Jesus' resurrected life becoming our, our regeneration and our, our being born again, our newness of life. When Christ died, Paul died too as far as the law was concerned. He died in the death of His substitute Jesus. In Christ, we have all died to the law as a way of getting right with God. But that doesn't mean that we've died, that the law has died. We've died to the law as a means of getting right with God in order that we might live to God. That's our identity. That's what we are. That's who we are. What we were in Adam was sinners, guilty, enemies of God Almighty. That's what mattered about our lives more than anything could possibly ever matter. Right? Whether you're rich or poor, whether you've had lives of comfort or lives full of suffering and sorrow, whether you're married, whether you're single, all those things matter. All those things are important, but not nearly so important as eternity. And whether you're going to spend eternity in communion with God in the presence of His glory, or whether you're going to spend eternity under the condemnation of His justice and wrath. Anything else in life, even the best gifts that God gives in this life, anything else that matters more than the question of eternity Anything else that we look to define ourselves by than Christ? Anything else that we look to satisfy our souls with more than Christ and being found in Him becomes an idol. 
that will only condemn us. Only Christ can bring us to God. Only Christ can deliver us from the wrath of God and guarantee us eternal communion with God. So, everything in this life that Paul thought was his greatest gain all turned out to be rubbish compared to being in Christ alone. And that's how we need to look at our lives too. So here, he says, kind of like a spiritual obituary, that he's died to the law as a way of becoming right with God because he's been justified through faith alone. Declared to be righteous by God in Christ alone. And notice with me here, verse 20 of Galatians chapter 2, and how wonderfully and beautifully and profoundly the Holy Spirit's words through the Apostle Paul in this one verse pull everything together that we've seen so far from all these passages and express so poignantly what it is and who it is that defines us. I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live. You see how significant it is? but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in, my, in the flesh, in my body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered Himself up for me. That is the governing directive of every aspect of my life. Not, I still do what I want to do. And when God's way provides me some advantage, some benefit, some blessing, some happiness... I'm really happy to do that. And I'm really happy that He showed me how to do that. But you know what you do every time you sin? You pretend and you believe that the sin is going to provide you more blessing and happiness than God has provided you in Christ. And you say, look, if I do it God's way here, it's going to be uncomfortable, it's going to be hard, it's going to be painful. It's not going to be fun. It's not going to be pleasurable. So I better do it my way. That's what we do. Every single time we sin. And every, ting, every single time we, 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 we do that kind of calculus in our minds and then give ourselves permission to sin, we're not understanding what we are. And we're still living like the old man that said, it's my life to live, and I get to be the one to decide which parts of God's instruction manual here, I'm going to apply to myself and live by. And I'm going to decide when I'm comfortable doing that and when I'm not. Who's on the throne? That's the question, right? Who sits on the throne, not in heaven, but in your heart, in the deepest seat of you? Is it God? Or are you still shoving him off the throne sometimes and saying, not now, not now. I'll let you back on later. But right now, i got to do it my way. See, this this is what Paul is now saying in verse 20. It's not you who lives anymore. It's Christ, the King of kings who lives in you. It's not your life to do with as you please. It's His now. Sin doesn't have dominion over you, but He is your Master. He is your Lord. He is your King. 
And you must not vanquish him from his throne and try to enthrone yourself by dethroning him. That's what sin is. So, see, this is how Paul died to the law. He died to the law when Jesus died on the cross. Because, as we've already seen in Romans 6, through faith we died with Christ. So this passage, this verse, everything else in the New Testament too, (laughs) teaches us that there are four things that got nailed to the cross of Calvary. What are they? The first one, the most obvious one, is Jesus Himself. Fully God and fully man. His person was pierced with nails and hung on a cross in Golgotha. And He died. Secondly, they nailed a sign up there with Him, right? A public announcement, John 19, 19. Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. That's the claim for which they condemned Him to death. That's how the Jewish people were able to convince the Romans to do this. He's trying to usurp the Roman authority. He's trying to disrupt the peace of Rome, the peace of the empire, the Pax Romana, which is what the emperor cared about the most. He's trying to set himself up above the emperor. He's an insurrectionist. He's got to be put to death. So they put him to death because he made himself out to be the king of the Jews. And they nailed that sign above him. And then thirdly, and wonderfully, there's this great truth that Paul proclaims in Colossians chapter 2 where he says in verses 13 and 14 that where we were dead in our sins and trespasses, now in Christ, God has made us alive by canceling out the certificate of debt consisting of charges against us, which was hostile toward, which was condemning us. He's taken that out of the way. How? Having nailed it to the cross. Jesus hung on the cross, the sign king of the Jews hung on the cross, and the certificate of debt the dossier of charges against you. You go into a courtroom and the prosecuting attorney is going to say, here's the charges against. And maybe it's in a little folder this thick. These are the things he's accused of doing. These are the things that we believe he should be condemned for or she, right? That's how it works in a courtroom. Now, how thick is your folder before God? (laughs) It's not a little, it's not a little manila thing, right? Every thought. Every evil deed, every attitude, every shameful word, all that whole massive dossier nailed to the cross with Jesus, canceled out. It can condemn you no longer. Isn't that great? I love Colossians 2.14. All our guilt, all our shame, all our sin, All our failure got nailed to the cross with Jesus, the King of Kings, who bore it all upon Himself as the ultimate servant by taking our place. But that's not all. Fourthly, Paul proclaims here the reason why what he said in Romans 6 is true, that we've been buried with Christ in baptism, raised with Him to newness of life, The reason why that's true is because we were nailed 
to the cross with not physically, of course, but in the great mysterious union that God affects with us in Jesus, we have been crucified with Him. All that we were, He took upon Himself. And all that He is, He lavished on us. Everything that He suffered and endured in the cross is, is ours. Philip Ryken says, the crucifixion is not just a fact about the life of Christ and a momentous event in human history. It's the last part of every Christian's personal life story. Whatever was true about you before, this is the final word. You've been crucified with Christ. Raised with Him. Your life is hidden with Him in God. It's who you are. It's what you are. It's what defines you. Unlike anything else ever possibly could. Listen to William Perkins from the 17th century. We are in mind and meditation to consider Christ crucified. First, we are to believe that He was crucified for us. But this being considered, we must go yet further. And as it were, spread ourselves upon the cross of Christ, believing and withal beholding ourselves crucified with Him. So when Paul says in verse 20 of Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ. He uses the perfect tense. It's something that really happened. This isn't symbolic language. This isn't metaphorical language. It's not some subjective experience that as you look back and consider what Jesus did, it affects you emotionally and you can really appreciate it. It does that, but there's something way more important. In actual reality, in objective truth, historically, you have been crucified with Christ. That's the reality based on your relationship to Him and your union with Him. One commentator, Mark Seafried, says, Paul doesn't have merely his inward life in view, but his whole life, his whole person, his whole history, which has now been manifestly taken up in the cross and the resurrection of Christ. John Murray, brilliant Scottish theologian who taught at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia in the early part of the 20th century. John Murray says that this this truth that we're trying to get our minds around, but that is in fact, God reveals it and we can appreciate so much about it, but it is so great and mysterious in the, in the ways of God that we can't fully comprehend it. And that's, that's what makes it so majestic. John Murray says that this truth of our union with Christ, both forensically, legally, right, in terms of how God accounts us now judicially, and naturally, in terms of, of our very natures being redefined in Christ through death and resurrection in Him, Murray says this truth is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. You can't know what it means to be saved if you don't understand that you're in Christ. Once a sinner in Adam puts living faith by God's grace in Jesus Christ, then, then that person is in Christ. Being united to Him is a spiritual reality. Martin Luther says this, I love this. By faith, and this, this gets at the heart of what Paul's saying in, in, in verse 20. 
Martin Luther says, by faith you are so cemented to Christ that He and you are as one person which cannot ever possibly be separated, but you remain attached to Him forever. That's awesome, right? Glorious. What could be more glorious than that? What could matter to your life more than that? Than than being so cemented to Christ in covenant oneness that you remain attached to Him forever. What's the best picture that God has ever painted in this world, under the sun, this physical place where we live, of that union whereby we are cemented to Christ in oneness, covenantally forever. What's the best picture? What's the best illustration that God gives of it? It's marriage. Human marriage. A man and a woman, right? They don't just say vows. They don't just make an an agreement together that, you know, we're going to live together under the same roof and we're going to share money together and and we're going to raise children together and we're going to try to have a good time together and make a good life together. Marriage is literally God saying the two have become one flesh. You are so united to the person that you marry that you are not the person you were before you married them. 27 years I've been married to my wife. I got married when I was 25 years old, so I've been married longer than I was single. And that's a huge blessing that I want for all of you. And those first 25 years, I was Steve. I was doing whatever Steve wanted to do, right? And then I got married, and it wasn't just, well, now Wendy's a part of things, and so I have to also um, try to do things that Wendy wants to do. It's going to be a, there's going to be sort of this agreement that we're going to have, where sometimes I get to do stuff, and sometimes she gets to do stuff, and we'll work it out, right? Like, Like roommates have. Sometimes you can watch the show you want to watch on TV and then sometimes I get the remote or sometimes we're going to eat what I want for dinner and something. sometimes you can have friends over and sometimes I got to go to bed early. So, we're gonna... so much more than that. I was Steve who got to call all the shots in my earthly life. I am no longer Steve the day I get married. I am now Steve and Wendy inseparably. She is such a part of me. The two have become one flesh. God says about marriage. That's a union unlike any other kind of relationship you'll ever have, you'll ever know. Not just physically. You become one flesh physically, but you become one with your husband or one with your wife. Spiritually, emotionally, mentally, psychologically, inseparable. You can't consider yourself apart from that person anymore. They're an inexorable part of you So marriage, the most wonderful earthly gift that God has ever designed and and graciously gifted to us, it's designed and it's ordained to be a picture of what we have in Christ, what we are in Christ. Oneness with Christ. Cemented to Him in a way that redefines what we are. You've got to understand that you're not what you were before. This love that Christ has for us is a love by which he calls us what? His bride. His bride. So personally marriage for sure. Absolutely. He who finds a wife finds a good thing. 
If you find marriage, if you find a husband, if you find a wife, you have found a good thing. But if you have been found in Christ, you have found everything. Pursue a wife for sure. Pursue a husband for sure. Here's what I tend to tell people though. Here's what I tend to tell men who are single. Pursue a wife. Just don't make the pursuit of a bride become more important to you or more significant to your soul's satisfaction than the fact that you are the bride of Jesus Christ. Who you are eternally bonded to, cemented to, through faith in Him. So, I hope you can see from these passages that we've been studying together this weekend how massively and definitively important this reality of union with Christ really is. Once we're in Him by faith, and again, faith is a gracious gift of God that we didn't earn, that we couldn't muster ourselves, everything we've ever done becomes His. Everything that He's ever done in His perfectly righteous and sacrificial death and resurrection becomes ours. Right? That's why, that's why when you get married, You don't have separate bank accounts. You don't live in separate houses. You don't have separate stuff. Everything that I have becomes hers. Everything that she has becomes mine. Even I don't know how the laws in Nevada work, and the laws in California are getting really wonky now. But it used to be at least, and it still is, that when you get married, everything that you acquire together when you're in marriage belongs equally to both of you. Even the, even the pagan law courts will recognize that so that if you rip this marriage apart through adultery, through unfaithfulness, and now, of course, the pagan law courts will let you rip it apart for whatever reason you want, but at least they still recognize that if you rip it apart, everything is communal that you owned together. Your car is not your car. It's, it's your car with her. Your money, your house, your kids, they're not yours. They're yours with her. If you rip it apart, you've got to find a way of ripping all that apart and dividing it up equally. That's how it is with Christ. And we can never be divorced from Christ. We can never be ripped apart from Christ. And everything that is His is mine. In Romans 8, we are told that we are adopted as sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And, and, and because we're adopted, the word adopted means that we have equal rights with God as a naturally born child. That's what adoption is. You can't treat an adopted children, child differently than you treat a naturally born child. Even, again, in secular law. They have full rights, certainly before God. So God says, if you're adopted as my son, then you're also heirs of everything that Jesus is an heir to. With Christ, we're heirs. Of it. What is Jesus entitled to? What does Jesus inherit? <laughs> What's His? The whole cosmic order is His. Everything's His. And in Him, everything's yours. He's your only hope. His righteousness is yours. Inheritance as the Son of God is yours That's a glorious truth that should give perspective to every other wonderful gift and pursuit of our lives. See? Riken says, God attaches to us the events of Jesus' life so that they become a part of our lives. 
His story, the story of the cross and the empty tomb, becomes our story. Calvin says, we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we're separated from Him, then everything that He has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains utterly useless and of no value to us. But once you're in Him, God considers you white as snow, cleansed by the blood of Christ, as righteous as Jesus Himself was and is and evermore shall be because He's the spotless Lamb of God. Not because we're righteous, not not because we're good, but because we're in Him. And again, in Him, the old man who is naturally under bondage and dominion of sin, that guy's died. And in his place, this kainos new, this utterly and, and completely different kind of creature has been raised to a life that's increasingly mortifying sin, growing and thriving in holiness, which we saw, being transformed by the renewing of our minds continually, progressively, as Paul talks about in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. This is what your life should be looking like, right? From one level of glory to the next, being conformed into the image of Jesus. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18, we all, with unveiled face, with no barriers, with no buffers, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image of that glory from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Powerful words. When you you look at, at Jesus as your bridegroom, when you stare into the depths of His glory continually through His living and active Word, you become transformed by your mind being renewed according to who He is and who you are in Him. That pursuit, that, that quest for sanctification, that quest for holiness in our lives and the image of the glory of Christ, that's so definitional to what we are that Paul goes so far as to put it this way in Galatians 2.20. He's been crucified with Christ and it's no longer... I who live, Paul says. So what is, you see what he means? It's no longer I who live. He means nothing short of this. I don't even have a life of my own anymore. In the same way that I don't have the life that I had for the first 25 years anymore. Where where I could go like spelunking in some crazy cave. And if I never came out, you know, it would just affect me and my parents and I could, I could bungee jump off of a big tall tower, which I did. I can't, I can't just do that stuff anymore because i got a wife now. And she's one with me. I don't have a life that's my own anymore if I'm married. And in Christ, Paul says, I don't have a life of my own anymore. I don't have a life of doing things my way anymore. That's what it means to be in Christ. That's what it means for you whether you're single, whether you're married. I don't have this life of the old man where the foundational principle that drove everything I did and didn't do was, what do I want to do? That's not your life anymore. So if you're a Christian, you got to stop thinking that way. Paul's saying, the only life I have is not just the same old life refurbished and made better 
and given new, new cutting-edge ideas about how I can make decisions that might make me happier. That old life, that old person, the all-do-it-my-way person, got nailed to the cross with Jesus and crucified. He's dead. He's buried. Stop living like that guy. The only life I have now, Paul says, is the life that God puts me into and defines for me in the risen, glorious Jesus Christ. Take that reality and everything that we've learned together over these past three sessions. Take this definition of what it means to be in Christ and the fact that your life's not your own anymore. Again, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Colossians 3.3 Take that reality and let your whole life be transformed as your mind starts to become renewed by that truth and by that reality. That's the Christian life. At the foundation. Not just which of these principles can can make me happier, can give me more significance and meaning and fulfillment. But how can I, every minute of every day, say, My life's not my own to do with what I want. I am in Christ. Christ's life is being lived through me. It is no longer I who live. Take everything that that means and put it up as a a lens to see everything in your life through. That's what we're talking about. Then then you're starting to understand and, and make progress in what it means to be a Christian. Every choice that you have to make. Every decision that you have to make. Every temptation that you face. Every trial that you endure. Every hard, painful, sorrowful circumstance that you go through. You still have a physical existence, of course, right? Paul calls it the life which I now live in the flesh, which he means is his flesh, his body. But in this physical body of mine, which still has yet to be raised to immortality, that's going to happen, 1 Corinthians 15 says, when Jesus returns. Everything that's mortal about you, perishable about you, will be made imperishable. And then you will be fit to spend eternity with Him, eternal life with Him, body and soul in in glory. But, but in these bodies now, you got to understand that the only self you have is the one that's united to Christ and alive to God in Him. So Paul says, even in this life that he now lives in his flesh, in his body, he lives it only by faith in the Son of God. And faith is the assurance of what? Things that are unseen. Where do you learn about this Son of God who loved you and gave Himself up for you? This is how you live. This is how you live. Every single second. Do you understand God's Word sufficiently enough? Are you so familiar with it? Are you so saturated with it? Are you so marinated in it that instinctively, Every circumstance you face and every temptation you face prompts to mind a truth about the glory of God, the glory of Jesus Christ, 
His death, His resurrection, yours with Him, and what it means to be in Him and who you are now in Him. So that you can go, wait a minute, I can't make this decision. I can't do this because it's no longer I who live, but Christ lived in me. Because I've died to sin, because I've died to the law. None of us do, right? None of us understand God's Word and and are so saturated with it that our minds are, are, are perfectly attuned to it at all times. Which is, which is why we need it more and more and more. To be drinking deeply of it. To be saying, well, I, I have a decision I'm facing now. I wonder what, I wonder what wisdom would have me do. Do you, do, you, do you find it in God's Word? Are you studying it? Are you soaking it in? There's lots of it in there. How should I respond to this person that's slandering me? There's tons of, tons of wisdom in there, isn't there? How should I make this decision or that one? Well, what will Christ do in you? So you still have this physical existence. You still have this physical body. But the bottom line is, the life that you now live in Christ, it's not about you anymore. Nearly so much as it's about Christ who lives in you. It just means the world doesn't revolve around you. That was the old man. That's what we used to think. I became a Christian halfway through high school, in my teens. And I, used to, I thought the world revolved around, it's all about what I want. It's all about what I want to do. Then I became a Christian, and it was this long process that I'm still in the middle of, of realizing the world doesn't revolve around me. We, we, the old man is the self-centered man. And I forget who said it, but also the self-circumferenced man. He's the man who thinks the world revolves around him and his desires. Bottom line, it's not about me anymore. I must no longer be dominated by the thoughts of my own desires or ambitions. I must be dominated by thoughts and ambitions for Christ to be glorified in me. Will marrying this person glorify God more? That's the question. In my singleness, while I wait and pray and hope, am I content with what God and His sovereignty has given me in a way that I can glorify God even in this circumstance? Calvin, one more time. The Christian does not live by his own life, but is animated by the secret power of Christ in him so that Christ may be said to live and grow in him. This is what the Scottish theologian back in the 17th century, Henry Skugel, called The Life of God in the Soul of Man. That's a fantastic book. Write that one down. Henry Skugel. S-C-O-U-G-A-L. The Life of God in the Soul of Man. That'll transform the way you think about what you are and how you live. The bottom line of it all is this. The only way to realize what really defines you The only way to discover your true identity is not to seek it in the things of this earth or in anything that you can do. God blesses us because He loves us as children with all kinds of magnificent gifts in this world. He gives us jobs so that we can eat. He gives us money so that we can live. He gives us food. Look at those mountains out there. We were driving over Donner Pass, I was, and 
overtaken just with the glory and the beauty of God's creation. And then I realized, you know where these mountains came from? They came from a massive cataclysmic upheaval when God flooded the whole earth because of sin. It was part of the curse that made... So this, this world bears all the marks of the curse and it's still beautiful. And God still gives me wonderful things in this life and in this world. A home to live in. Wonderful relationships with wonderful people. He gives us marriages. He gives us families. Because He loves to give us good things. And wonderful as they all are, and as grateful as we must be for them when God gives them to us, we can't let those things define us. We can't let the lack of those things define us or, or communicate our true identity to us. The only way to discover your true identity is to find yourself in Christ. You're defined. Your identity is absolutely established eternally in infinite years beyond your life in this world in union with Jesus Christ. What if I'm single for all my life? What if my wife, who I've been married to for 27 years, dies? She got cancer six or seven years ago. And they told us, it's not a good one. It doesn't respond to chemo. doesn't respond to radiation. If it spreads, nothing we can really do. Well, praise God it didn't spread. Praise God that in His providence, He had to switch insurance companies two months before the diagnosis because we couldn't afford the old one, which we thought was the better one, so we had to go with the cheap one, which we thought, oh no, now she's, what? <laughs> what are you doing, God? Well, guess what? The new one put us under the care of an oncologist who happens to run a study group on the whole West Coast for this particular cancer. <laughs> and he is in the middle of clinical trials, developing a new way to remove this cancer because the old way, when you remove the tumor, there is a 75% chance that it will come back and it will spread to other organs and it will kill you. And he said, I'm not happy with 75. So he has a new way of removing these tumors and he wants my wife to be a part of the trials to remove the tumor. And we said, well, what's the chances that it comes back then? What's the percentage then? And he goes, well, we've been doing this way for about five years and we haven't had one come back. How's that for Providence? How's that for a gift? But what if, what if he takes my wife? What if I have to go through that pain? My oldest son almost died of sepsis when he was 15 years old. I almost had to airlift him to, to Stanford Hospital because he was so sick that he could have easily died and God spared him. What, what if I have to go through that? What if the... 80, 85, 90, 95, whatever years I have in this world are just marked by loneliness and pain and hardship. <laughs> in Christ, Paul says, it's all a momentary light affliction compared to the glory that has been laid up and that he is preparing you for. Because eternity with him. New heavens, new earth. You think there's going to be mountains in the new earth where there was no flood or cataclysm? I hope so because they're beautiful, but I don't know. But whatever it is, it's going to be way more beautiful even than this. There's no marriage in heaven. What is? 
What does that mean? I'm spending eternity without the best blessing in my life because whatever else there is is going to be infinitely better. Put your hope in that. Put your hope in a wife. Put your hope in a husband. Pray to God for that. Pursue that. And as long as He has you wait, keep your eyes fixed on the things that are above. The things that you can't yet see. The things that are yours in Christ. And realize that even now and in this life that you live, in this body, you have no self except the self that you have in Him. And so your self-image cannot ultimately depend on anything or anyone else. I plead with you, don't let your past define who you think you are and what yourself is and what your image of yourself is. Nothing that's happened in your past Nothing that you've ever done in your past. Nothing that anyone has ever done to you in your past defines you. Nothing that you're trying to do in the present. Nothing that you're hoping for outside of Christ in the future defines you. Only Christ. Who He is, what He's done, who you are in Him because of all that He is and all of the fullness of His glory and everything that He's done in all of His great faithfulness and love, all of that's yours in Him. And He knows you want other things too. And He knows that they're wonderful blessings. He's not the kind of parent who goes, well, we're not going to have Christmas and birthdays and give fun presents to our kids because we don't want them to be spoiled. We want them to be disciplined. That's not God. God is gracious. God is merciful. God loves to shower us with good gifts and light our faces up with delight like little kids at Christmas. Be content with everything that He's given you. And realize that all that He is and all that He has is yours and Him. And you're His. You're His. Already. You're not waiting to be His. You're already His precious bride. You're already God's beloved adopted child. You're already an heir together with Christ, in Christ, of everything that Christ owns. And that's everything. And that's forever. What could be better than that? What could satisfy our souls more than that? More than Him and being in Him, right? Amen? Let's pray. Again, Father, we ask for Your help not just to understand and not just to be satisfied with the things that are too high for us to fully comprehend and understand. We ask for Your help, Father, with these things that You have revealed, even the incomprehensible ones that are so magnificent that they are too brilliant for our eyes to fully behold. We ask for Your help to embrace them. And to understand that we are defined by them. And to live in light of them. And to make them the priority of our lives. And this reality of being in union with Jesus Christ. To be the lens through which we measure every other thing in our lives. Every gift that you've given, help us to be grateful for. Because it is ours, because we are in Christ. United to you, reconciled to you, adopted by you. And so you as our Father are the one from whose right hand all good things come. And every hard thing in our lives, Father, every trial, 
Father, help us to understand that that's given by You, not as an outpouring of wrath and punishment because Jesus bore all that already, but it's what a loving Father gives in order to train us, even though it's unpleasant at times, to bear the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And so, Father, help us to rejoice, even in our trials, even in the painful things, even in the disappointments, even in the things that we pray for over and over and over and we don't see yet. Help us to rejoice in our sufferings because in Christ, You use them for our good in conforming us more to the image of Christ. You use them to build our character and our endurance and to increase our hope. And in Jesus alone. And may we be grateful for all that He is and all that He's done and all that we are in Him and all that He does for us and gives to us in this life. Keep our eyes fixed on Him, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.